0: Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr.
1: Michael Roizen.
0: You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You're listening to You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast on Radio MD, iHeart, or wherever you download us from. Thanks very much for doing it. Um, Do tell your friends about us. Rate us every week. And for extra stories you want us to cover, new guests, or questions you have of any of our guests, it is info at greatagereboot.com or questions at greatagereboot.com. We have a wonderful guest for you today that I knew way back in the bioethic days at the University of Chicago. That's more years ago than I can believe. But Stephen Post is now the director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University Renaissance School of Medicine, where he also serves as a professor of family, population, and preventive medicine and head of the Division of Medicine and Society. He's an elected member of the Medical and Scientific Advisory Board of the Alzheimer's Disease International and only one of three recipients of the Alzheimer's Association Distinguished Service Award. He's written, this as I think, his third book on the subject, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. This is a riveting, literally a riveting book called Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People. Stephen, I probably haven't done justice to the introduction, Um, and Stephen did uh, dedicate this book to Dr. Joseph M. Foley, who was his mentor at Case Western Reserve University, if I'm correct in that. Stephen, correct me.
1: Oh, he was very much a mentor, and uh, he's passed away, but he's still a mentor. Um, And so this book... as, I've, as you
0: get older, um, and I'm 76, so I might as well say that. As one gets older, one loses friends. Um, and not only do you lose friends, you find some of your friends are caring for patients with dementia, various degrees, or Alzheimer's disease. And... Um, I know you don't like to use the word dementia.
1: Tell us why. Well, I'll use it sparingly in a pinch, but in general, it's a negative term. It translates quite literally, decline from a former mental state, which in some sense it certainly is. However, uh, it also invites negative metaphors, which I do not like, like husk, shell empty gone dead and so forth deeply forgetful people is a much more open concept it doesn't separate them from us I guess uh, in a stretch we all have our moments of forgetfulness anyway and uh, I think that it's more of a continuum term And there really is a continuum uh, as people get older uh, and have normal age-related forgetfulness and then mild cognitive impairment. So I don't like to think of someone as demented because it makes them so alien to our own experience.
0: Now, my mother-in-law um who lived to 101 uh did not develop but she was still having finan- she was still managing her finances the only reason she drove she gave up driving was she gave it up at uh, 2 weeks before 100 because she said if she has an accident after 100 they'll blame her no matter whether it's her fault or not and found uh, Uber just as easy to take in fact when she <laughs> i've got to say when she um, fell down, didn't break anything, but when she fell down, um, she called Uber to get from uh, Judson Manor, which you know in Cleveland mm-hmm. where she was living, to the Cleveland Clinic Emergency Room. And uh-huh. um, when she, uh, she passed on, when she actually was holding the elevator for a friend as they were going down to um, exercise class with her cane, um, and uh, the elevator started to close and pull her. She let go of the cane, fell backwards, developed the subdural, and uh, um, died the way she wanted to quickly without losing her facilities. So I didn't get to, um, if you will, uh, experience um, any loss with her but it is possible to live quite long without developing forgetfulness. Is that true, or is that just a rare case?
1: It, it, it is true. And Dr. Alzheimer himself did not think he had discovered a disease, although reluctantly it was named after him. Uh, he was reluctant about it. He thought he had simply observed in a relatively young woman, uh, Augusta D., Uh, in her uh, late 50s, normal brain aging. Now, epidemiologists will these days look at people in their late 90s and even a little beyond, and they find that the uh, incidence of probable, it's always just probable Alzheimer's, uh, goes up and up so that about 60% of women, for example, in that age bracket are, clearly affected. Uh, But from about age 60, it's basically two or three percent, and then it'll double every five years. So this marches on, and we don't have a magic bullet.
0: Now, I'm going to tell you about what I think is two magic bullets that are coming along before we get through. But before we go over those potentials, um, I want to go through Sixteen questions you discuss. I think it is in chapter three. Um, this book was so good. Normally, I I am um, how do I call it uh, diligent or um, if you will nerdy enough to um, try and read the book I get to discuss every week um, with uh, before I discuss it on the show. And I did not, you're, the, the, the intent and the intensity in my reading this was uh, so much that I didn't get past, um, I think it was chapter uh, either four or five, where you discuss what is called PPAS. What is PPAS?
1: Ah, uh, preemptive physician-assisted suicide, when people... Uh, wish to preempt the decline and they go off to uh, Dignitas in Switzerland or maybe they go to the Netherlands or maybe they go right up to Canada. I tell some stories I've uh, witnessed, uh, not necessarily condoned but witnessed uh, in, in the book, uh, some of them uh, occurring right around greater Cleveland when I was there 15 years ago.
0: And um, let's. But I want to go through the sixteen questions. I think in chapter three, and then go to uh, PPAS if we have time. Um, so, should we break the news to Grandma? Is one question one, and what's the answer to that?
1: I don't think there is an easy answer or a single answer. There are so many cultural variations. People bring so many backgrounds to this. The uh, question of whether you want to simply say that, well, you're losing some of your capacity for memory. Uh, We're not quite sure uh, where it's going, but we'll be with you all the way and as helpful as we possibly can be. Uh, And then maybe grandma's thinking, oh, it's probably Alzheimer's, but don't tell the kids. And the kids are thinking, well, it could be Alzheimer's, but don't tell grandma. Um, oftentimes, people respond very favorably to getting a diagnosis. There was a fellow I knew who lived in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, and uh, he knew he was getting a little emotionally distant and not recognizing some of his old friends. It was a an old uh, Jewish neighborhood, so people tended to live there for long periods of time, and uh, he was so happy to get a diagnosis. He went door to door in the neighborhood and he told all these old friends, you know, I'm not a schmuck. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I've got something called Alzheimer's disease. And he was relieved that they understood what was going on with him. So it varies all over the map. Uh, the, uh, one of the epilogues of the book is written by a Chinese American, uh, friend of mine out in California. And, um, Uh, you know in that community they do not like uh, any kind of discussion of uh, diagnoses of dementia by whatever cause. The uh, second question I've
0: got to tell you is um, how quickly I will decline and I'm going to just uh, get through that and say it is very very variable and some people don't decline at all others decline rapidly and most decline uh, almost uh, in a uh, slow but steady fashion, Um, as all of us. But you point out a key point. We don't lose consciousness. We don't lose our appreciation for music or art in that decline. Do you want to expand on that? Well,
1: that's right. In fact, the saving grace, is that our whole selves, our consciousness, is still there. Our linear reasoning, our ability to reason our way through a problem or to get from point A to point B, which Western philosophy puts much too much emphasis on, that may be compromised quite severely. We may not be communicating well, we may even be silent, but nevertheless, we have symbolic rationality, the rationality not of what we do, but of who we are. And I've known people who have uh, grabbed hold of a rosary bead, for example, at the very end of their life, and surprisingly uh, issued a, a wonderful version of the Our Father. Or people who do Nam yoho Renge Kyo with their with their beads. It's it's absolutely the case that uh, symbols still matter. People can relate to symbols and music. Personalized music is refreshing for. Almost everybody, about 80% of people anyway, will sort of come back into themselves for a brief period. They'll get somatic. They'll have a sense that they're no longer gone, that they're there. And the family members are very inspired by this because they realize they're not caring for uh, someone who's gone, a husk, a shell, and so forth, but they're caring for grandma. And one of the chapters is entitled, Is Grandma Still There? question mark, And I think so. Now, what about
0: when you hear about the stories about violence? In other words, some of the people get violent or attack their caregiver.
1: That can happen, and it has to be dealt with very carefully. People typically will need professional help and advice. But on the other side of it, the artist Wilhelm de Kooning, the abstract expressionist, was known for constant fist fights on Bleecker Street in front of the Café Wa. He was diagnosed with probable Alzheimer's by Dr. Norman Relkin at Cornell, and for 14 years he had the condition, and he would be sitting in his loft in Greenwich Village. He would spontaneously, unpredictably rise up, dip his brush in acrylic, and go to the easel and paint. There was a posthumous exhibit of his work, And I would say that his early work is intense, anxious, somewhat violent, very violent at times. But his later work is much more serene, much more tranquil, much more placid. And I think he came into himself. I think he discovered a deeper essence to himself that freed him from the culture of modernity.
0: And are there really any effective drugs to stop the disease?
1: People will give you different opinions and they'll say be sensitive, but honestly speaking, we should not at this point be putting our hope in uh, the pharmacological interventions. The problem is, you know, uh, years ago people thought, well, it's a cholinestrase inhibitor will do the job, Uh, but actually uh, that did not uh, pan out. Uh, It may do a little something, give people a little bit of word-finding advantage for a brief period of time. But as uh, actually the individual who came up with that idea, Peter Whitehouse of Cleveland once said to me, uh, it's like treating a brain tumor with aspirin. It has no impact on the underlying condition. And uh, then people have come up with new ideas about beta amyloids and so forth. None of that is panning out. The bottom line is nobody who's honest knows what causes this condition. Nobody can really quite define it very clearly to begin with and so the pharmaceutical industry doesn't quite know anymore what to aim at now that may change but this is a much more complicated situation than say something like AIDS where if you figured out the culprit you could get a three-drug cocktail this is not so simple but you can you can eat well you can have a good diet you can exercise uh, you can walk recent articles walking in nature seems to be helpful reducing stress, uh, these are all positives.
0: And you undoubtedly know about the AMBAR studies, which we've talked about a lot on the podcast, including interviewing a couple of the primary investigators. AMBAR uses, um, if you will, the plasma exchange, therapeutic plasma exchange, and has results over 15 months which show reversal of mild cognitive dysfunction of the Alzheimer's type and uh, both caregiver and patient responses on every, on virtually every one of the cognitive tests um, showed improvement over a 15-month period. That's now in its second phase three uh, FDA trial. And the FDA has said they will give them um, both um, rapid permission to do the trial and approval if the second trial shows the same benefit on the randomized control trial that the first 2B3A trial did, which was a multi-center study in uh, three different uh, countries. The U.S., it was Pittsburgh and Cleveland Clinic that were the partners with a Spanish group and a, a Chilean group. So Um, The AMBAR, A-M-B-A-R studies, we've talked about enough on this podcast even to uh, let people know there's a new study out this week where, in fact, exchange of CSF um, seems to do the same thing in an animal model, but we, we don't have human trials on that. Well, I'm
1: keeping my fingers crossed, and I'm hopeful about what science can come up with. I do think that there have been a lot of false starts and over-advertisement for many of these things. So if there's a new model out there, including the AMBAR studies, that's great, and I hope it works. Um,
0: Should we tell other people about my diagnoses is question five.
1: Well, that's a good question. You don't have to. You can if you think it's wise. But, you know, there are some people who you cannot trust with this information and some people you can. So you have to use a certain amount of discernment and uh, don't be just uh, absolutely over the top and running around the neighborhood because there are people who uh, will not understand and who may even use it against you in some way, shape, or form.
0: And this is... I think the most important one in the book, question six, is will I still be there, more or less, despite the silence or confusion?
1: And my answer is yes. I have, in my own experience, since I was a young guy, doing assisted oral feeding with my grandmother in, uh, in New York once upon a time, I've always uh, understood that it would be completely arrogant and unfounded to say that somebody is gone and absent. When I was a student at the University of Chicago, I had the good fortune of studying a bit with Sir John Eccles, who had won the Nobel Prize for all his work on brain synapses. And he was very clearly one who never believed that a person was gone. He was actually a dualist. He believed that there was something mysterious and even eternal about uh, the essence of the human person. Uh, If you're a Buddhist, you would certainly accept that. And if you are a Hindu, you would say, Namaste, I honor the divine in you. But many people uh, are not willing to suggest that the mind is simply derivative from matter. I know that's popular uh, in neuroscientific circles, but at least half of the major philosophers of mind don't think it makes any sense so it's a mind before matter matter is real they're not idealists in the sense that they don't think the world of matter exists but they do think that there's something more primary and that maybe matter comes from that so how can we say that a person's mind is absolutely gone i don't think so i think uh, as i well i was talking with a guy up in detroit not too long ago whose older sister had just passed away with Alzheimer's. And I said, so how did you feel about her in the final weeks? And he said, well, I was there, and I sensed that she was present. Uh, I couldn't swear to it. And then he said, but you know, I think, why can't I say this? She may have gone down to the Amtrak station and put one foot on that blessed train bound for glory. And I laughed. And I thought it was great, because if that's the way people want to see it, they can, and we can't tell them otherwise.
0: We're talking with Stephen Post, who's director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook's University Renaissance School of Medicine, where he also serves as a professor of family population and preventive medicine. You can tell from the depth and and, uh, quality of his answers that this book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, how caregivers can meet the challenges of Alzheimer's disease—that he has written—is a, at least in my mind, a very powerful and wonderful book. Um, question: the the next question, and and I think that was the one of the key question is, am I still there? I'd like to go to a story about P.P.A.S. that is preemptive physician-assisted suicide and talk to you about that, uh, Stephen, in our last few minutes. I have to tell you a story about a, uh, f- a, if you will, friend or patient. Um, he decided he um, both had, um, if you will, deep forgetfulness was developing, and he had cancer um, that was very painful. And the combination he uh, wanted to take some very heavy medicine. And then he decided he wanted uh, to um, commit suicide, if you will, to for, to end it all. And he had saved up enough drugs and went to Florida, where apparently uh, this is legal. And he was there, um, and he took all the drugs, was with his family, um, his uh, only relative remaining was his daughter and son-in-law, and, um, which we'll call Rob and Carol for the sense of the story, although that isn't their real names. And he took them, and then the hurricane came. Um, that is, there were hurricane warnings, and they were told they had to evacuate, and the police came to their door, if you will, and said, you've got to go. They were in an apartment building. And they said, well, my, my dad is here to, um, and is in this suicide role. And they said, you've still got to go. So they evacuated with their dad in the car. And he woke up um, an hour or two into the drive out of the hurricane. And uh, he said to them, Rob, Carol, I didn't expect to find you here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, and of course, and of course, um, three uh, days later they did it again, if you will, and he passed on and didn't suffer anymore from his cancer pain. But I thought that was a uh, <laughs> a wonderful Powerful. story about it. So tell yeah. us about your feelings about um, PPAS.
1: Well, you know, when I was uh, living in Hyde Park, Chicago, I had two mentors, both of whom were distinguished psychiatrists. One of them had a wonderful family, loved his family. He had a diagnosis of probable Alzheimer's disease, and they were so good to him, and it was just wonderful to see their response. On the other hand, there was another psychiatrist who had no family at all. And we have to recognize that about 20% of people these days with Alzheimer's disease are what are called, I don't like the language, live-alones. He took 40 secanols and put a plastic bag over his head. Now, I saw that contrast in 1982 and 83 when I was living there. And since then, I've kept my eye out for it. I don't judge anybody who wants to end their lives early because in old age, they don't want to go through what the Dutch call unt loistering or self effacement. On the other hand, most of my writing is all about finding and noticing and seeing the self underneath the breakdown in communication underneath the silence and making connections in all kinds of different ways through creative arts and whatever. So I'm a big proponent of that. But I do not want to condemn anybody who says, you know, this is not my thing. I don't have the support for it. Uh, it's, it's not in my M.O. And I, uh, I have actually uh, witnessed on uh, two occasions along Lake Erie, um, uh, two families without the grandchildren in the homes, uh, where a neurologist had, had actually prescribed uh, the, uh, the drugs. Uh, but did not want to be there present, and uh, I didn't particularly want to be present either, but they looked at me as kind of a pastoral figure, as someone who had been looking after them and caring for them and helping them and giving them respite uh, once a week for about four hours so they could go out to a movie or uh, go to a restaurant. That's what I did when I was living in Shaker Heights at least one day a week, and this book really came out of those kinds of experiences. So, uh, you know, I, I, I sat there in this room, the fire was, uh, was, was on, the, 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 uh, the music was playing, Bach in one case, uh, and uh, um, a woman said goodbye to her adult children uh, and to, uh, to those she knew well uh, and said a prayer, uh, breathed deeply, drank her chocolate shake, and then in a little while she was gone. I don't think she did harm to anybody, and it's not as though she was, in, she was setting a bad role model. Because, you know, the Greeks, the Roman Stoics, they were against suicide except for people who are very old and very frail and just don't want to put up with the kinds of declines that we anticipate in that period of life.
0: We've been talking with, and you can tell, a wonderful human being who's campaigning, in fact, for that respite care for caregivers um, to be a function of insurance. Um, his name is Dr. Stephen Post. The book is Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People. It's a wonderful and intense. Uh, I would say read for the caregiver who is involved in it, but an important read because of the expertise in Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease, from Johns Hopkins University Press, um, out, I think, uh, this week. Thanks very much, Stephen. We, of course, are brought to you, as usual, by licefirstnaturals.com, but we've skipped most of those ads this week because this is such an important topic and so well described in Indignity for Deeply Forgetful People. This has been 1099B, the B's are always the guest segment, of You, the Owner's Manual radio podcast. Stephen, thanks again.
1: Thank you so much, Michael. It's an honor and a pleasure to hear your voice again and to think back to all those wonderful days I had living in Shaker Heights and going into University Circle and all the people who inspired me. It's a Clevelander's book in a lot of ways.
0: And I should say that University Circle is still and is actually a better and better joy um, all the time. It's uh, getting its second or third renaissance um, if you come to cleveland um, don't just go to the hall of fame or uh, the rock and roll hall of fame or don't go, just go to uh... see the cleveland cavaliers or the cat cleveland guardians or the cleveland browns come to university circle where the museum and the orchestra and the set of museums are magnificent as is uh the medical care, if you will, surrounded by the Cleveland Clinic and University Hospital, um, and people who are deep thinkers like Stephen Post. Caitlin, thank you for great engineering, and I know we've ran very long on this podcast, but I hope you've gotten as much out of it as I have. Do get the book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease. It's a true... Uh, work of art. Thanks again.